we are continuing our journey into the book of Galatians today. Um, Paul's letter to this church, again, was a letter that was filled with tension. He's upset. He's angry with what's been allowed to happen, and he's addressing it in ways that are a little bit tougher than we're used to hearing from the Apostle Paul. But before we get to Paul, I want to talk about Jesus for a moment. After his initial arrest and beating, he was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was known in history as being a very cynical and a very pragmatic leader. Virtually every ruling he ever made was made from the context, how is it going to help me the most? Jesus is standing before him, and Pilate asks him a question. Now, before I get to the question, you need to know Pilate had undoubtedly had other people that he was aware of who were claiming to be Messiah. There's a strong thought along um, the scholarship that Barabbas was not just a thief, but he too may have been a claimant to the title of Christ. So he asks Jesus, Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, is that what you think, or have you has someone been talking to you about me? Pilate responds with a question that right off the bat we may not get. Am I a Jew? Now I think behind that, am I a Jew, is a statement of Pilate's, you're not my king. You may be the king of the Jews, but you are not mine. I don't know what what that has to do with me. Your own people, he said, your chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate responds, so you are a king. You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And at that point, Pilate asks an age-old question. Uh, it is a question that has been going on for centuries. It will go, if the Lord tarries, it's a question that will be going on long after you and I are gone. Pilate asks, what is truth? What is truth? Now, throughout the ages, people have tried to answer that question, and they've come up with a lot of different answers. Perhaps they were philosophers like Diogenes. Legend tells us that this Greek philosopher, who is a follower of cynicism, would walk through the streets of Athens in the daytime with a lamp, sticking it in people's faces, saying he was looking for an honest man. And then there's Plato who turned the world upside down when it came to what is reality. Because Plato said everything that we see, everything we touch is essentially an illusion. The only thing that matters is the spiritual, that which cannot be seen. And then you had René Descartes, centuries later, a French philosopher, who said if you really want to know the truth, the key is 
you have to start by doubting everything. Well, there were some religious leaders. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mary Baker Eddy, who founded the movement known as Christian Science, and who was a lot like Plato. In her teachings, she said, sickness, death, and sin are illusions. If you just knew the truth, you would be free. And then there was the Korean minister, Samyun Moon, uh, who at the end, toward the end of his life, finally announced, he had been hinting at it for decades, he finally said, I am the new Messiah, and I have been put on earth to accomplish the things Jesus was meant to do, but was unable to do. In other words, Jesus failed, I'll get it right. Sometimes these seekers of truth are scientists, people like Carl Sagan, in his his series on PBS Nova, boldly proclaimed, there is nothing here but the cosmos. And then Richard Dawkins, uh, the probably best-known atheist of our time, who, uh, from a scientific persuasion, says the only thing that is real and true is that which can be tested empirically, that that can be proven by scientific method. So people have been trying to answer that question, what is truth? And the reason I bring it up, in today's text, the Apostle Paul was dealing with the people who needed to, needed to really understand what was happening around them and to them. They were needing to hear the truth. And so Paul reminded his readers of his life and how he had received the gospel. So we're going to look at Galatians 1, 11 through 17 this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the word. And you've heard me say on more than one occasion, listen with both ears and your heart. I'll tell you why I'm bringing that up again in a moment. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul essentially, in trying to bring his readers back to a truth that they were in danger of letting slip through their fingers, Paul essentially went back to the beginning of his encounter with Christ in order for these people to know and affirm the truth of God. And I believe that it's important for us every once in a while to go back to the beginning, to go back, as it were, to the ABCs, to remember what we have already come to know. Now, why? The writer of Hebrews said, 
You should be through with ABCs by now. Move on for deeper things. But I think there is an importance of remembering. And basically, by going back and looking at the bedrock of our faith, I'm not saying get there and stay there, looking at the bedrock of faith, the truth of God can become cemented in our hearts. We can remember and rejoice at what God has already done. And this will in turn help us to stay faithfully on the road to truth. The pathway to knowledge, the pathway to truth of God, we need to look back. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at some truths about the truth of God and hopefully come away more firmer, firmly in our faith stronger in who we are. And we'll begin with this. The truth of God is not dependent upon traditions of humans. I need you to hear me. The truth of God is not dependent on human tradition. And remember when I said, listen with both ears and your heart? That's my version of what Paul is doing here. I want you to know. is how he begins the, the text. I want you to know, that's known as a discourse formula. It's Paul's way of saying, okay, whatever you're doing while this letter is being read to you, whatever you're thinking about, put it aside and listen. What I'm about to tell you is crucially true. So as he begins, Paul made it clear that he was not simply parroting what he had heard from others. He was not simply saying, listen to what I've learned. He said, it was not after man. Now what that essentially means, it is not according to man. It is not according, man is not the measure, it's not its strength, it's not its pattern. In other words, he's saying, what I'm telling you didn't come about because some really smart people who knew a lot about God talked to me. This isn't dependent on human inventiveness or genius. Second, he said, I did not receive it from any man. Now, we know the story of Paul's salvation. He was saved on the road to Damascus, going there with the purpose of persecuting, arresting, and bringing Christians to what eventually would be their death. Jesus met him on the road, blinded him, saved him, changed him. And Paul could have, his next stop on his journey could have been Jerusalem. In fact, that seems to be what his detractors were saying. Paul's just telling you stuff that he had heard from other people. Paul said, I did not go to Jerusalem. I did not approach with the other apostles uh, who were men of God, chosen by God before I was. He said, I didn't do that. Instead, I went to Arabia. In other words, he does not seat himself under somebody's teaching. He does not listen. He goes to Arabia. Now, what did he mean by that? Most scholars believe he was talking about the Nabataean kingdom, which stretched from east of Damascus all the way down the Sinai Peninsula to the tip. And there are some scholars who think that maybe Jesus went as far as Sinai. We don't know how far he went. But he said, I wasn't there to receive it from man. Now, the word receive is a very particular type of meaning. And he, he starts off emphatically, I did not receive it from other men. 
This word was used to describe a rabbinic way of teaching. The rabbis would hand down oral tradition. Rabbi ben Sirach, Rabbi ben on and on and on. He said this, he said that, he said this, and now I'm delivering it to you. And Paul was using this to affirm my knowledge of the gospel did not come through oral tradition. And I'll get back to that oral tradition in just a moment. But, but he said, I, I didn't receive it. Like, I received the knowledge that two plus two is four when I was very little. I didn't one day sit down and look at two objects and another two objects, putting them together and suddenly come up with four. I had to be taught math. I had to learn the ABCs. And there was somebody alongside who would help me do that. Paul said, that is not what happened to me. I didn't receive it from the the inventiveness of humankind. I didn't receive it from oral tradition. I wasn't taught the gospel. Human instruction didn't lead me along the way. And you need to understand that. I am not dependent on the traditions of man to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. That's all well and good. But what does that mean for you and I? How does this move in our lives? I need you to listen again, both ears and your hearts. Tradition should not rule our faith. Now, we have tradition. The reason we have tradition is we're human beings. And we have to have some sort of thing that will help us, some sort of thing that will focus us. And so traditions are invented. Traditions come up. Human beings, by very nature, need some kind of tradition to help them stay focused. And some of the traditions that we have are kind of neutral. For instance, the time of service. Now here at Bay Vista, we shaved it a little bit. We're at 1030. But 11 o'clock is the normal hour of worship across this, this nation. And it's not unusual for somebody to come into our sanctuary at 11 o'clock, thinking that's when we'll start. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to ask again, do you know why we worship during this time frame? Some, I know someone does because he lived the life. Folks, there was a time we were primarily an agricultural country. You had to get up, slop the hogs, feed the chickens, milk the cows, get back in time to clean up to go to church. Now, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you slopped hogs, fed chickens, or milked cows today by show of hand? And we do have a, we do have an invitation later where repentance can happen. Uh, folks, we're not primarily an agricultural society anymore. And it is kind of neutral. When you have the worship service, that's not good nor bad, per se. And then your translations. For centuries, the King James Version of the Bible was the English version of the Bible. And then in the 70s, a new translation came out, the New International Version. And by 2000, it's the first English translation ever to outsell the King James. More people seem to be using it. And now we have the English Standard Version that is coming along. 
gaining much popularity. And your scripture preference can be neutral. Not always, but can be. And then how many of you are familiar with the expression Sunday best? I'm pretty sure we've got a, a congregation skewed in a direction that most of us will understand Sunday best. You get up in the morning, you put your best clothes on, you're going to worship God. You ought to look, at, you're honoring him, so get in your best clothes and come to church. That can be neutral. Now, on any given Sunday, not today because it's a weird day for us, I will be probably the only person in here, unless we have a visitor, only man in a, uh, at least a blazer and tie or a suit and tie. And ladies, I don't see any of you wearing Sunday hats. And some of you are uh, in uh, pants and not dresses. And so uh, Sunday best, while we don't recognize it so much here, uh, it's not a bad idea, but do you know that each one of these traditions that are neutral can suddenly be, take a very dark turn? When we condemn a church that worships at some other time than 11 o'clock, how dare you mess with the time of service? Or when we say the translation of the Bible we prefer is the only translation that's legitimate. All others are the works of heretics. On a number of occasions as driving, I've seen churches with big signs out front, good old-fashioned gospel preaching from the King James Version of the Bible only. When you see that sign, you know something immediately about that church. You know that they believe any other translation is wrong. Or what if in our Sunday best, Sunday go-to-meeting best clothes, Someone walks into our church in blue jeans and a t-shirt. And we have the officials to meet them and say, you're not welcome here. And folks, it happens. And the traditions, people in the Bible, folks didn't have Sunday best. You wore the clothes you wore. And if it were in the Old Testament era, you wore on Sabbath what you had to wear. The only folks who were dressed differently in the Old Testament were the priests. Neutral. Until we turn it into something that can turn people away. But then there are some traditions. As a friend said, I'm about to quit preaching and meddling a little bit. There's some traditions that are diametrically opposed to the Word of God. They're diametrically opposed to the, the gospel. Segregation. Decades ago, Martin Luther King Jr. said, It is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And folks, that's still true. Unfortunately, we work hard here at Bay Vista for that not to be true for us. But folks, there are churches. If you have the wrong amount of melanin in your skin, if you don't speak my language as your first language, if you're not from the same social class that I am, you will not be welcome. And folks, this is diametrically opposed to the gospel. How do I know that? Because in the very book we're reading, 
in a few weeks, we will come across a passage of Scripture that says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. And folks, anyone who walks through that door, whether they look differently, dress differently, talk differently, have a different social economic construct in their lives, you will never find your pastor telling them, you can't come here. And I pray to God I will never hear anyone else saying that. But there's another tradition that shows up in the broad body of Christ. Hate. This is a picture of a member of Westboro Baptist Church. God killed your soldiers, sons. Pray for more dead soldiers. This is a group that made uh, national attention during the Gulf Wars by protesting at soldiers' funerals, people who had died serving their country. Because they said, the reason you died, God hates America and he's punishing you, so it's a good thing you were killed. They stand on street corners with signs declaring, you're going to hell. And they say it with glee in their voices. Fred Phelps, the founding pastor of the church, was once asked, why do you preach hatred? He says, because the Bible preaches hatred. So this group was not known for telling people, how do you come to Christ? The good news of the gospel, they were telling everybody, you are hated by God. And folks... Let's be honest, you've heard this a lot lately. Jesus said we're to love our neighbors. Jesus said we are to love our enemies. I don't have the right to pronounce condemnation on anyone. That's in the hands of God. I may try to talk to them about their way of life. But folks, I'm not free to hate. So we need to look at traditions. We need, to, we need to balance what we're doing. And finally, in terms of application, let us guide our traditions by God's truth and not the other way around. If we look at the Scripture and discover that's not what the Bible teaches, then we need to get rid of the tradition. This is so crucial because we get set in our ways. We get familiar with and we begin to embrace. So we look at Bay Vista Baptist. We need to look at all of the traditions that guide us and make sure are they in fact focused on what God's word says. And why is this important? Because of our next truth. The truth of God is found in his revelation. The truth of God is found in his revelation. And again, Paul makes this clear. Paul clearly affirmed that his good news came from God. Now, it's highly unlikely that Paul had never heard about Jesus. He doesn't anywhere in the Bible say he had not heard about him. He does say uh, that he didn't worship him or serve him during this earthly ministry. But when Paul was going to arrest Christians, I can guarantee you there were people who tried to tell him about Christ. Why persecute the church if you don't know anything about the man the church is saying it serves? But the point was, whatever he had heard about Jesus, 
even perhaps from those he was taking to be killed, it didn't touch him. That knowledge meant nothing to Paul. He had rejected it. And then lo and behold, God Almighty, who had a plan, broke through. And on the road to Damascus, Paul hears the words, Why are you persecuting me? I don't know who you are. I'm Jesus. And he had an encounter with the Lord in such a powerful and amazing way that it changed everything. God broke through the barrier of Paul's hearts. And so he may have heard people say he's the Christ. He may have heard about healing. He may have heard about wise teachings. None of it touched him until he met God on the road to Damascus. And the point of this for us is that spiritual apprehension about who Jesus is can't just come through tradition. And it doesn't just come through teaching. Now, please hear me carefully here. Yes, we need to be witnesses. We need to be telling. We need to teach our children. We need to teach our friends who Jesus is. But folks, for it to become real, God has to break through the heart. And through the Spirit of God, He convicts, He challenges, and change comes. When Paul said, I receive my gospel from revelation by Christ, and later he says, when God revealed His Son to me, Paul was saying, what happened to me is kind of like what happened to the prophets in the Old Testament. God would come and say, this is what I want you to be. This is what I want you to say. And Paul said, God changed me. And revelation means an unveiling. Taking something that wasn't known and opening it up. And suddenly all the stories Paul may have heard about Jesus became true because the Spirit of God, God himself said, this is who I am. Okay, so again, what does this have to do with us? Well, we truly cannot know God if we do not embrace his revelation. We just can't do it. You're not going to learn about God just by having philosophical arguments, pondering what would God be like if there were a God. It's going to come through his revelation. Now, the Greek philosophers had a concept. The the absolute God was absolutely unknowable. He was so different, so far away, that human beings would never, ever, ever be able to encounter the absolute God. And there is some truth in that. What I mean the Holy One of Israel, I am that I am, is so far removed from you and me, we would never know him on our own. It would be impossible for us to know God, the triune God, God, Father, Son, and Spirit. (laughs) How many of us are just going to come up with that idea? We could not know God except for this. God is the one who told Israel, come, Let us reason together. God is the one. When Moses said, whom shall I send? Say, send me. 
Tell them I am. I am that I am. He gave his name to Moses. He's the one who stoops to walk with his people. He is the one who comes to us that we might come to him. And if he did not do that, we would never know him. It would be about as absurd as thinking of me going out into my yard and squatting down and talking to a group of ants and tell them, please, quit coming into my house. You're bothering me. Go away. And every one of us said that would be absolutely absurd. For me to say I discover God on my own is absurd. He is so far removed. But he is a God who speaks to us. And it is through the Spirit of God that Christ comes every generation, touching people, winning people, wooing people to the kingdom of God. On our own, we could not know him. But he has not left us alone. Folks, every time you open your Bible, we ought to be saying, thank you, Lord, for a miracle. Not only the miracle of inspiration in the writing down, but the miracle that the Scripture was not destroyed by its enemies, as they've tried to do throughout the centuries. You have a Bible because God wants you to know him. So, let us affirm God's revelation in our faith and practice. Again, what do we believe here at Bay Vista Baptist Church? We need to take a look at that. And we have affirmed, as a Baptist people, we believe in the tenets of our faith. We have called ourselves people of the book. Almost from the beginning, Baptists first showed up on earth. Because we wanted people to know we, our faith is built on the word of God. Again, not the tradition of men. But also, what about our practices? So we must judge everything we believe by God's word. Some of the toughest things I've ever had to do in my life as a Christian was take a look at some of the things I was taught early on in my life. And I just accepted that's the way it is. And then I started reading the word of God and started seeing that those things don't necessarily line up. And I love those people who were my Sunday school teachers and who were my preachers. I love them. And I'm not saying they were teaching heresy. I believe they just had an interpretation that I can no longer support because I look at the Word of God and said, okay, what do we really believe and is it connected to the Bible? And we must evaluate our practice and its inheritance to the Word and its principles. One of the things I challenged us to do as a church when I first came here, is look at everything we're doing and see how does it line up with God's purpose for this church. And we need to do that from time to time. How do we do it? How do we act? Uh, while the Bible doesn't give us any strong orders of worship, we do know that there are certain things the Bible talks about in worship. It talks about singing and praising God. It talks about praying. It talks about the word being expounded. So we embrace those things. But we always should take a look. Um, it's interesting. As Baptists, one of the things we do... Now, I'm not going to challenge what we're doing, okay? But we use grape juice on communion, don't we? And 
because of my position on alcohol, I have no problem with using grape juice. What I do have a problem is when we start looking at other groups that don't, who actually use wine and start criticizing them. When I went to Ukraine, the first Sunday we got there, I was preaching, and they were having the Lord's Supper, and our missionary told us, now, they use real wine. And my folks were freaking out a little bit on my team. He says, if you can't, if you cannot do it, then just pretend. But then he said something that really freaked everybody out, and they use a common cup. So we've got a group of about 15 Ukrainians in the congregation. Almost all of the people on the team were sitting behind them. And they, they took the cup, and several of them pretended. Now, one of them did a really bad job, because it, it got this close to his mouth, and that's as close as it got. Fortunately, the Ukrainians didn't see and weren't offended. I was given the cup, and I took it, and I drank, and I was no longer afraid about the common cup, because there's not a germ that could have survived the alcohol content in that wine. Man, it was strong. But before you start talking about what you believe, and I have reasons, I abstain from alcohol. But I made that choice when I was a teenager because I have a fan, I come from a family of alcoholics and drug abusers long before I surrendered to preach. But folks, be careful that you do not condemn folks who believe the word teaches that uh, a moderate use of alcohol is not forbidden by the scripture. And I guarantee you, you go across the pond. <laughs> There are a lot of Baptists who use wine in their communion. So are we being true and are we, are we giving additional facts about the word? So we need to understand that. We need to get. We need to look at everything we do. Now again, as far as the grape juice... I am not going to suggest that we do something that will offend a brother or sister in the Lord. I still have that same conviction about alcohol. So I understand why grape juice was accepted. But we need to start looking honestly about what we say we believe and how we practice that. Because that's where we get into trouble with Sunday best and at what time of worship and what time of of translation. But that's not the only reason. The truth of God comes through his revelation for a purpose. And this is our final truth to look at today. Crucially important. The truth of God has the power to change lives. The truth of God is what changes people, not our tradition. Now, our tradition may make people bow down and obey, but it does not change their heart. It is the truth of God revealed in his word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul is talking about this, he does what he knew to do. Paul's testimony stood as a tribute to the power of God's good news. Look at me. He says, you know what I used to be like. Now there's some debate. Part of what he said, those false teachers were probably saying, I don't know why you're listening to Paul. He was persecuting the church. 
He was dragging people off in chains. That may be how they heard about his persecution. I personally believe that he also shared what his life had been. He told them, I'm a, I am a zealous follower of the law. I advanced over people my own age. I'm, I was the Jewish faith poster boy. I practiced Judaism, excelling my own contemporaries. That help you understand what that meant. Central to the religious thought of rabbinic Judaism is a belief that divine inspiration doesn't just cover the scriptures, it also covers the oral traditions. And so those oral traditions were passed down. One uh, ancient Jewish writing said that God gave Moses the scripture and oral tradition at the same time, and both had equal inspiration. So if you were a good rabbi, if you were a good Pharisee, you were memorizing those traditions that gave birth to the book called the Mishnah. And it was those oral traditions that got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees. Remember when they challenged him? Your, your, your followers don't even wash their hands before they come to dinner. Folks, that wasn't a thing about sanitary, sanitary method. It was an oral tradition. It was talking about cleanliness of a spiritual nature. On and on we find this. Paul said, I knew it. I learned it. I lived it. So being part, during Jesus' time, being part of a Pharisee was memorizing the oral traditions, and Paul said, I did it. I excelled. I persecuted the church. And he does use a word that doesn't just mean I harassed them a little bit. He said, my goal was to destroy the church. I wanted to wipe it out. In his mind, these were heretical Jews who had separated themselves from the truth of the Torah and the oral tradition. They had to be dealt with. They had to be destroyed. And Paul said, I set out to do that. And then God revealed himself. And everything changed. In my understanding, there is nothing that can explain the change in Paul other than a direct confrontation by God in his life. Paul was changed because God spoke into his heart. And it's what was true of Saul of Tarsus. It's true of the other, of many other people, other apostles. Peter. Remember Peter? Lord, everybody else may done an eye, but I will always stand true. And then at the Caiaphas courtyard, he denies Jesus three times. Folks, how do you take that man and suddenly, within a short period of time, have him standing in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, saying, that Jesus that you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. The only thing that explains that is true conversion, encounter with the living Christ. And how about John? John and his brother James were given the nicknames Sons of Thunder. Because a little town rejected Jesus. They wanted to call fire down on it. They wanted everybody in that town to burn and die. And then we find him at the end of his life. You cannot read 1st through 3rd John and not be overwhelmed by his sense of love 
and its purpose and its meaning. He even calls the people he's writing to, my dear little children. It's the good news of Christ that changed that. And so when we look at this from our perspective, we can become the people we are meant to be when we receive God's revelation. Because I believe it is the good news of Jesus Christ revealed in God's world that can change human beings. And not just in that moment of initial salvation. Show of hands, how many of you from the day you were saved lived perfectly everything God told you to do? Okay, we're going to have a crowded altar here this, this morning. Christ saves us. Yes, he brings us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But the changes and the growth continually happens throughout our lives. How? Through the word of God, through the revelation, we can become more and more the people God has called us to be. And the power of God to change lives is absolutely amazing. I actually had a copy of the comic book that you see up on the screen. It was a comic adaption of David Wilkerson's book, The Cross and the Switchblade. And then you see Nikki Cruz with a switchblade at David Wilkerson's throat. And he says, I could kill you, preach. And Wilkerson said, yes, you could. You could cut me up into a thousand pieces. And every one of them would say, I love you. If you've never read The Cross and the Switchblade or seen the movie or read the comic book, It's an amazing story how God brought a a small-town southern preacher to New York City to preach to the gangs. And a big part of his focus came on Nicky Cruz. Cruz was a warlord of the group, the Mau Mau's. And uh, Wilkerson kept trying to reach him, and Cruz kept threatening him. And finally, Nikki hears about a crusade, an evangelistic crusade. And get this, David Wilkerson is intentionally targeting the gang, the Mau Mau's. And he sent a bus into their neighborhood to pick them up and bring them to the boxing arena for the crusade. And Cruz went. And when he got there, he admitted that later that he was, he was feeling bad about what he had done. And God starts bringing that act of conviction on him, and he doesn't even know what's happening. And then it came time, Wilkerson said, we're going to take up an offering. And he asked members of the Mau Mau gang to take up the offering. Nicky Cruz jumped up and volunteered, and they went through the crowd. Now, folks, when, when Fulton or, or Ken or, or any of our guys... All of a sudden come a Don, Billy, when they take the offering, I am pretty certain none of them have ever looked at you with a look, if you don't give something, we'll be waiting for you outside. <laughs> we might increase offerings, I don't know. But uh, that's what the Mau Mau's, they were kind of threatening people to take up the offering because their intention, they were going to go backstage, go out a back door and take the money with them. But when they got backstage and saw the exit, Cruz said, we need to give money to the preacher. And they took it out on stage and gave the collection to Wilkerson. Later in the meeting, 
Wilkerson gave an altar call. And on that day, a battled gang warlord who had been raised up in his own testimony, run, baby, run, in, in a household uh, where folks worshipped Satan, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he says that after, after this happened, the madhouse who got saved went to the police station with their knives, their bricks, their handguns, and turned them over to the cops who were freaked out. And he said, you know, if they had seen us coming, they probably would have shot us down. And Nikki Cruz went to Bible college, studied the Word of God, became a preacher, and returned to his old neighborhood. And actually won the gang's new leader, Israel Narvaez, to the Lord. By the way, Cruz is still ministering the Word of God today and into his 80s. That change is explained by the power of God's Word when it touches the human heart. People the world give up on can come to faith. So let us open our hearts to all God wants to give us through his Word. Let us be intentional. Let us be focused that the Word of God is not something we open up on a Sunday morning, period. We want to know it. We want to learn it. We want to live by it. We want to direct our lives by it. Let the Word guide our lives. God, here I am. Fill me up. There's a gentleman by the who, who was named Kim Peek. He, he went on to be with the Lord in 2008. He was a man who inspired the character Raymond Babbitt in the 1988 film Rain Man. You may not have known it was based on a real guy. Um, Peek was not autistic as a character in the movie, but he was what doctors call a mega savant. A savant is someone who possesses remarkable expertise, usually in one to three subjects. Kim Peek was expert in at least 15, including history, sports, space, music, and geography. If you've ever been proud of your own intellect, folks, he, when he would be on tour talking to people, he would ask them uh, their birth date and how old they were, and he would tell them, what day of the week they were born on, what was in the major newspapers on the day they were born, what the weather was like where they were born. Uh, scientists have said no one has ever had a, a brain as extraordinary as Peaks. The interesting thing about the two halves of his brain, uh, those synapses and connections between light, right and left hemisphere were non-existent in Peaks' brain. They couldn't exactly explain what was going on, but he essentially had total recall. I know several ladies love book club. He had total recall of the 12,000 books he read. And this is what, this is the one thing that just blows my mind most of all. When he would read a book and have it open, 
His left eye scanned the left page while his right eye scanned the right. Simultaneously, his eyes were looking at different pages. It said that a, a, a page that would take you or me three minutes to read, he'd have read in ten seconds. And he had a passion for truth. My favorite story about Kim Peek, one night he was at a performance of Shakespeare's play, The Twelfth Night. And as the play was ending, Peek stood up and shouted out loud, you've got to stop it, stop it, stop it. It turned out the actor had skipped the second to last verse of the play. And Peek knew it. And the actor said out loud, answering this young man, the verses are so much alike, I didn't think it would matter. And then how do you like this for an answer? It mattered to William Shakespeare, and it should matter to you. Can you imagine what would happen in the church in our world right now? Here on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, the middle of the Bible Belt, if we are as, were pa- as passionate about the Word of God as this savant was passing, passionate about one missed line in Scripture. I dare say our nation would be different. There would be an impact that politics can't make, that finances can't make. Because the word of God would become burning within our hearts. And you know what happens when that happens? We can't help but tell people about the Lord who has saved us. Today, with so many things that are being said in the name of the Lord, some of which have nothing to do with God's word, we desperately need to know God's truth and word. We must stand for the word. And so I call you this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm asking you to speak to God and ask him for a passion for the word like you have never known. Ask him to give you a hunger that will not be satisfied with anything else. Ask him to give you the heart of the psalmist. He said in Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you.